Hello and welcome to the Local Myth Storian podcast with me, Eli Lewis Lysett. The Cheshire monk Ranulf Higdon is remembered to historians today as the author of a distant world history from the 14th century. However, beyond his daily religious work in the Abbey at Chester, he was an inquisitive and curious man of his age. Traits that can help us understand better why such a figure of Christian piety would come to be buried with a notorious totem of the magical arts. Renovations in historic buildings rarely pass without curious incident. Alongside the practical implications of removing stonework, altering floor levels and repositioning artefacts, there is also the basic reality to be considered at every turn. There is a chance, no matter the intention, that those carrying out the work may come across human remains. And on occasion, sometimes those remains are more famous than others. There are few more explosive figures in English history than that of King Charles I. The man divided a country, led it into civil war, and as a result of his subsequent beheading, inspired hundreds of pub names the length and breadth of the country. Following his execution in January 1649, where he reportedly wore two shirts to ensure that his tremble in the winter air would not be taken for fear of his fate, his body was placed in a coffin and taken to the chapel of St George in Windsor. A hundred years later, though, there was no sign of his final resting place in Windsor and somehow nobody could quite remember where it was supposed to be. Rumours circulated that he had been in fact interred at Westminster Abbey, in secret, at the behest of his son King Charles II, sometime in the 1660s. However, in the early 1800s, when a mausoleum was being built at Windsor under the personal instruction of King George III, workmen accidentally crashed through the wall of a passageway and into a vault containing the remains of King Henry VIII and his third wife, Jane Seymour. Dean of Windsor, Benjamin Charles Stevenson, was charged with making his way down into the vault to inspect the damage, where he was surprised to find a third coffin alongside those of Henry and Jane. It was draped in black velvet, and Stevenson knew his history. He recognised from the descriptions he had read that this could well be the missing coffin of King Charles I. Temptation soon overcame any notions of good taste. Upon removing the shroud, the inscription was clearly visible. It was the coffin of the long-lost king, but it wasn't enough to simply recognise the fact. And so, in the spirit of the human fascination with the macabre, he ordered the coffin open. Removing the covering from the head, he saw that the long face with a sculpted, pointed beard bore a striking resemblance to that which had come to adorn all manner of coins, busts and portraits of the late king. Yet still, confirmation of the face wasn't enough. And so, Stevenson lifted aloft the skull in the dim light of the chamber, to check that it had indeed been separated from the body in accordance with a formal beheading. Gruesome, but it's a discovery that pales in comparison compared with the fascination we might find in our own forthcoming tale. As sometimes the things we find in coffins hidden away in our most ancient buildings will raise far more questions than they can ever hope to answer. Sometimes they compile and mystify, and an incident at Chester Cathedral during renovations there in the 1870s would certainly do just that placing the very nature of the institution's Christian heritage into a rabbit hole of esoteric possibilities. Founded in 1093 as the Benedictine Abbey of St. Werber, by the 19th century, this county's greatest of structures was badly in need of repair. It had been at least 200 years since the last major conservation work had taken place, and significant portions of the cathedral were now on the verge of collapse. And various work projects would take place between 1820 and 1876, in an attempt to save the building for the future. 
It was during the latter stages of this revival, under the auspices of the great Gothic architect, George Gilbert Scott, that a find was made which gave cause for serious disquiet in local society circles. Buried in the cathedral were, and still are, a plethora of historical figures from Cheshire's past. These include Hugh de Averon, the first Earl of Chester, and Ranulph de Blondeville, the sixth Earl, and a veritable megastar of the High Middle Ages. One figure not quite as well known, though, was the 14th century chronicler and Benedictine monk Ranulph Higdon. It was when realigning his tomb that by accident or design his stone coffin was split open. Inside, Higdon's remains were wrapped in the remnants of his burial shroud as expected, but atop it, perfectly preserved and altogether unexpected, a long hazel wand had been placed. A sign of pagan belief, curiosity and concern in equal measure soon began to smoulder in the conversations echoing throughout the cloister of the cathedral. To the Victorian mind, in an era infused with the esoteric, the wand was quickly noted to be a tool of the occult. And so a natural question was posed as to just what business did such apparatus have being found in the sanctuary of a millennium-old centre of Christianity? It's a question that is yet to be answered, but one we will now dare to satisfy here. Established under Roman rule as a major administrative centre, the city of Chester, or Diva to give it its Roman name, had been founded in 79 BCE by Emperor Vespasian, and, if recent suggested theories are correct, had likely been intended as the new capital of Britannia. This is something which would account for the fact that its amphitheatre, that traditional centre for gladiatorial and sporting games, is the largest of its kind in the whole of Britain, seating around 10,000 people. Its original fortress, too, was the largest in the province. The city, surrounded by plenty of navigable water, was located deep enough into the new Roman territory to suggest a natural command centre for the wider world around it. For a little while at least, it's hard to argue against Diva being viewed as one of the most important settlements in the whole of the Roman Empire. From this firm foundation in Rome, naturally the soldiers that found themselves at Diva, together with their families and dependents, would worship the plethora of Roman gods and goddesses that was their will throughout a tenure in the northwest that lasted for more than 300 years. When Rome officially withdrew from Britain in the year 410, the city would then be inhabited by a Romano-British people that had developed in the shadow of its imperial safety, continuing to utilise its fortress in order to provide sanctuary against the frequent raiding parties that would come in from Wales and Ireland. They would live with a history of its Roman heyday for hundreds of years. As Roman rule gave way to the age of Scandi-Saxon conflict which followed, Chester surfaces on the record at various points denoting its continual cultural and administrative importance. In 616, there comes the Battle of Chester, in which Ethelthrith of Northumbria defeats an invading Welsh force. A key event surrounding the battle was a massacre of monks from Bangor, who had been targeted for fear that they had been praying for the defeat of the Anglo-Saxon forces, a signpost to the emerging cult of Celtic Christianity that was beginning to rival the pagan belief system of the post-Roman world. Seventy years later, Ethelred of Mercia would found a new church in the city. This church would grow, and Chester's Christian status would become cemented with it. By the 10th century, when the body of St. Werber, niece of the aforementioned Ethelred, was brought into the city in an attempt to ensure it was not violated during Norse raids in nearby Staffordshire, Chester had become a major religious centre at the heart of Saxon Christendom. It was a sign of the city's emergence as such a centre that in 1093, following the destruction of the Collegate Church, a new Benedictine abbey was founded in its place. And it's in this building that will go on to become the cathedral that we find Ranulph Higdon living and working as a monk in the year 1299.
It was a curious trait of the Benedictine order that if a member had talent for writing, this would be actively encouraged to become their primary daily task. Perhaps accounting for as much as six hours a day, virtually all the work time available to the medieval monk outside of their religious rites and chores. And it's something to which Ranulf seems was particularly well suited, and something that, should the curious mind choose to picture it, would give ample opportunity for all manner of literary investigations and conjectures to bear themselves out in the work of an inquisitive chronicler. It could even be considered just the kind of sympathetic situation required to guide a person with a curious mind towards less well-known pathways of thought. Details as to his earlier life are scant, as you might imagine, but we do know that Ranulf Higdon was born in or around the year 1280. Described by contemporary scholars as a man of the West Country, by 20 years of age he had come to find himself in education at the Benedictine Abbey. A religious order within the Catholic Church, the Benedictines, or the Black Monks in reference to the colour of the robes, were founded by Benedict of Nursia, an Italian monk who had become canonised due to his creation of a specific code for his fellow brothers to live by. His canonization as a saint was further helped by the fact that Benedict also knocked out an impressively diverse line in miracles, ranging from the practical, mending a piece of clothing by prayer, to the downright dangerous. Benedict once been credited with the exploding of a poison chalice, which had been handed to him by a group of nefarious monks simply by looking at it. Growing out of the Italian peninsula during the 6th century, by the time of their Chester foundation, the order had come to be one of the most well-respected in all of Europe. The life of a Benedictine was dominated by Benedict's rule of worship, a series of daily rites stretching from 2am until sundown. For most Benedictines, however, aside from their devotion and work needed in order to run a successful monastery, to labour is to pray being a favourite motto, there was also a real emphasis placed on the idea of learning or more specifically, reading. Between prayer and its associated duties at every spare moment, and even whilst eating their meals, there was a constant encouragement to read. It was that part of Benedictine life that resonated at a volume within Higdon. We know his talent for writing had been with him from an early age, and it's something he would make a deliberate effort to nurture long into his adult life. In 1327, now in his late 40s, Ranulf drew on that lifetime of learning and skill as he compiled a work that would, for centuries to come, be considered the definitive work on history of the known world, Polychronicon. By the age of 70, Ranulf Higdon had become nothing less than the bona fide authority on historical matters in England. His elevated status would have surprised few close to his field of study. The Polychronicon had been something of a sensation. Written in Latin, the first version of 1327 had been followed by further extended publications during the 1340s. Divided into seven books, as per the days of Genesis, it began with a geographical view of the world before going on to cover histories from Asia and Africa alongside that of Europe, with a substantial section devoted to the history of England from the period of the Saxons through to the reign of Edward III himself. And to this day, copies of Hingdon's final version of 1352 are held in esteemed libraries across the world, not least of all the Vatican. There is a view that Higdon had gleaned most of his knowledge from the works that surrounded him at the Abbey. And whilst this would certainly be fitting of the times, and no doubt a great deal of study in situ would have been necessary, there is also evidence to suggest he had gained certain aspects of his knowledge directly from his travels throughout the world surrounding him. This is particularly likely in respect of the subject matter that most of us would associate with the image of a wand like that which Higdon was buried with. 
witchcraft. There is a direct reference within Polychronicon to the witches of the Western Isles of Britain, and particularly the Isle of Man, where we learn that in the Isle of Man is sorcery and witchcraft used. Women there sell wind to the shipmen, closed under knots of thread, so that the wind he would have, the more knots he must undo. Western Isle witchcraft, with its distinctly elemental focus, had been known to scholars since at least the year 1200, with stories of how King Hakon of Norway had fallen victim to such forces on his visit to the region. A flood was reportedly raised by the witches of the West to blow clear his fleet for fear of their intent of invasion. The Isle of Man had been a province of Norway until it came under Scottish rule in 1266. In a foreshadowing of King James' own work on the subject much later in 1597, the governor of the Isle of Man had written against using witchcraft as early as 1338. My labour on this point is metered by the fact that Higdon is noted to have been a man of the West Country. I wonder if there may not be some direct connection, therefore, with his knowledge of the witchcraft of the Western Isles. This connection is suggested directly from the contents of the Polychronicon itself, but it may well be that Higdon had more localised knowledge on the subject too, having far more interaction with the world that existed beyond the confines of the Abbey than had previously been considered. It's often overlooked, but the Polychronicon wasn't Higdon's only published work. There was also the Mirror for Priests and numerous others specifically designed to be used by and regarding the daily lives of his fellow monks. What draws further interest for us, however, are the works he is suspected to have written, and those that may give us insight into another, more colloquial side of his character, namely the Chester Mystery Plays. Mystery plays were popular across Europe from the 13th century right through to the middle of the 1700s. They primarily consisted of performances based on Bible studies designed to spread the word of God to audiences that were otherwise struggled to perceive the meaning within. In effect, it was the Bible live on stage for the masses. Performed outside the church entrance, in the street or at common markets, the Chester plays are one example of several well-preserved in England, with others associated with Coventry and York. First performed by the monks themselves, and then also by members of local guilds, the plays were the cause of some controversy in the heyday, as naturally, such public performance could easily, and often did, create something like a carnival atmosphere. There would be ale drinking, feasting, and a whole parade of wagons filled with cavorting patrons. In Chester itself, a dedicated carnival route was established moving along Northgate and Watergate before crossing to Bridge Street. The route would spark no less than three straight days of celebration on Whitsun Week in early summer, beginning in the morning and lasting long into the darkened hours. Quite the spectacle, the plays would eventually be banned in 1578 on account of their perceived ability to inspire debauchery in the common people of the city. Higdon is thought by many experts to have been the original writer of the Chester plays performed during the 14th century, and it's his association with them as opposed to anything specifically included within, that should draw our curiosity now. A talented writer of his time, undoubted, but his position in relation to the creation of the plays shows both a desire to mingle with the local population and an acute knowledge of its sensibilities. Not the kind of thing you would expect from a reclusive character like that which Higdon is stated to have been. When held against his knowledge of the wind knots of the Western Isles, we may well find a reason to inquire as to the likelihood of opportunity Higdon may have had to enrol himself with the folk of the countryside at large, and therefore too, their practice of country witchcraft. And as we will now see, the issue of witchcraft itself was far from taboo for brothers of the Benedictine order in England during the period. If anything, 
it was nothing less than an officially sanctioned source of exploration. Esoteric texts were part and parcel of the library for any Benedictine abbey. The order's focus on education and reading meant that there was a real cultural breadth to the material their brethren would consume. But thanks to the catalogue of one location in particular during the period, the Benedictine Abbey of St Augustine's in Canterbury, we can get a real sense of just how deep that exploration ran in the vein of specifically denoted magical books. More than 30 such texts were donated to St Augustine's across the medieval period, helping to form a collection of works that actively promoted ideas associated with the magical arts. Part of the logic for this was that in the working of Christian prayer, a certain kind of supernatural force was deemed to already be in play. Naturally, this meant that anything mimicking a similar act would form a legitimate field of study, be it to prove or disprove anything that did or did not align with accepted Christian doctrine. There is evidence from the same period as Higdon's life set out wonderfully in Sophie Page's Magic in the Cloister from 2013 that the monks investigating such matters were far from adverse to attempting certain charms and spells themselves, most pointedly with the aim of bettering the order's lot economically. Mostly written in Latin, the idea of metaphysical magic was a popular subject for those living and working in closed abbey communities. It was, ironically, given the backlash on such subjects that will come later in the early modern period, viewed as a legitimate gateway to spiritual knowledge. Partaking in the practical application of such spells and charms was often justified with philosophical arguments and rationale centred around that combative mindset that was growing through an age of increasing scientific revisionism. Even when such texts should have proved controversial, the fact that many survive today shows the level of toleration afforded to the subject. At St. Augustine's, the monks involved in the collecting of magical texts were never accused of anything other than diligent hard work. And it was that collection, still intact come the dissolution of 1538, that would ultimately end up in the private hands of one of the most infamous of 16th century polymaths, Dr. John Dee. The fact is, the very order of which Higdon was a brother was the primary safe house of magical learning in the whole of medieval Christendom. Having established that the idea of a Benedictine monk being somehow connected to the matter of practical magic in the medieval period has been far from outlandish, we should now look to the ideas centred on the issue of the hazel wand itself. In British folklore, which so often provides the best hope of understanding when dealing with such distant, obscured practices, hazel is often associated with the warding away of evil spirits. More broadly, however, as we stretch across varied cultures, the primary association for hazel is that as a symbol of knowledge. Relatively commonplace in the grave pits of European prehistoric burials too, and in Eastern mythology, far from denoting an active practitioner of magic per se, hazel wands have long been associated with protection against witchcraft. Rather than a tool of the wielder, they are the rebuttal and the shield. Whilst the motivations which lay behind the full meaning of such an object being placed in the tomb of Ranulf Higdon may be eternally lost to us, the fact that it was placed there at all can offer us a real window into its wider cultural context. Quite obviously, Ranulf didn't place the one there himself, meaning that its relevance and suitability for Higdon in death must have been known by others at the time. That is to say, someone else, and most likely a figure of influence, thought it appropriate, perhaps even necessary. 
that other party too would have been part of the Benedictine order at Chester come Ranulph's death on the 12th of March 1364. An observation which glows hot with possibilities for the imagination when we learn that incredibly, Ranulph's burial was not the only one at the Abbey to be marked out with the placement of such a wand. When it comes to such burial rites being carried out in the Cathedral at Chester, I'm drawn to entries made in the local press at the time of the discovery of Higdon's wand. A magazine for curious gentlemen, where those so minded could find a forum to write with questions and replies in each issue, the Cheshire Sheaf of May 1878 reads like this. Some three or four years ago, when the grave of Ranulph Higdon, the historian, was discovered in Chester Cathedral, it was stated that in the same another tomb, in an adjoining aisle, there had been found a long hazel stick placed in each case across the sear-clothed body. There must have been some significance, occult or otherwise, and in this curious burial custom, I should be pleased to learn any information you may pick up for me, therefore. GT. GT are the given initials of the question's poser. And in reply, we have this from the equally mysterious TT. The hazel stick found in the two tombs in Chester Cathedral named by GT, and also in a similar grave of Abbot Birchall's in the Lady Chapel there, many years before, shows the prevalence of superstition among people in high places during the early days of the English church. Its use, under such circumstances, is held to be an antidote against witchcraft and all other evils in the future of the deceased. I am aware that the one being placed in the grave has been regarded as a badge of authority, and I know that the bishop's pastoral staff or the abbot's crook is not infrequently so found, but I can find no reason why the switch of a hazel tree should be regarded as a religious symbol. My belief is that blind superstition was at the bottom of it all. TT. Abbot Birchall's is recorded as being at the abbey during the 1320s, a time when Higdon was deep into writing the Polychronicon and an abbot noted in chronicles of the time for holding too many feasts, eating meat on fish days, and using the abbey's funds to buy up books for his personal use. There was also a scolding noted, recording how under Abbot Birchall's, some monks had started to dress differently in an apparent attempt to denote their status. That the very abbot who was heading up the abbey during Higdon's heyday should too come to be buried with a hazel wand is quite the point of note. Far from being an outlying curiosity of abbey life in Chester during the 14th century, it may be evidence that this cult of the wand was relatively well established, even to the point of being enshrined in the burial of the abbot himself. Ranulph Higdon was a remarkable scholar of the 14th century, whose chief work would be held in esteem by the broader church for more than 200 years. Beside this remarkable feat of medieval academia, we also have good cause to believe him a man of studious local interest in both the people and the places of Cheshire and further afield too. His place at the heart of the Chester Mystery Place may be speculative from an empirical historian's view, but is well in keeping with the comparatively fun-loving attitude of his head abbot when we consider the feasts and revelry apparently so favoured by the man in charge. In a Benedictine order known to have journeyed extensively within occultish realms, clear to us courtesy of their magical collections down in Canterbury, that both men should be buried with a totem of magical working and protection, calls out to a greater creation around them, a belief system entwined with, yet notably distinct from, the clearly defined ordained structure for which the order would be outwardly known throughout Europe. Commemoration in death and the objects we are buried with is perhaps the greatest testament to our personal beliefs that it's possible to share, all the more so during eras of the past. The idea that Higdon was some kind of Cheshire warlock is admittedly quite fantastical, 
but the image of Higdon purely being a historical scholar doesn't fit the evidence at all. In his story, we find a gateway towards the paradoxical realities of religious life during the 14th century. The mystics of rural society were, during Higdon's lifetime and long after, something to which the church publicly cast a troubled eye, whilst the other looked toward them with marked curiosity. The broader hinterland of study in which their beliefs were recorded, that of magical texts, formed a core knowledge base free from taboo. Once we remove our modern assumptions, there's no hint of secretive guilty pleasure to be fostered onto the subject at all. The reading and understanding of such works would have provided a perfectly legitimate endeavour within the structure of the order, encouraged intending to ensure that no hidden gem of God's own law was unfurled by the less pious. If anything, it was a clear case of it being a necessity to know your enemy, and if that enemy was a devil, his strategies and techniques were thought to be naturally abundant in the work of witchcraft. Of course, such time spent on the topic, alone in the candlelit rooms of the Abbey, was bound to create a more personal interest too. It was a relationship in which the brethren were directly in contact with the enticement such subject could elicit for the reader. That such a connection was made seems apparent by the evidence of the burial rites of both Higdon and Birchall's, but it is only our modern interpretation, or perhaps more accurately our tether to the long-lingering ideas of the Victorian age, which grant any sense of mischief to the whole affair. It is far more likely that Higdon was just as fascinated by the idea of magic as we are today, and that for a brief moment, the bonding of Christianity and witchcraft was meted out in the actions of certain members of the Benedictine order in Cheshire. After all, when we consider it, when it comes to the magical arts, the two may be considered inherently connected. I mean, just how does someone turn water into wine, or for that matter, feed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two small fish? For the religious scholars of his age, an inquisitive study of magical possibilities may well have been the very thing expected of great academic minds such as that possessed by brother Ranulf Higdon. What he came to understand then through his work, symbolised for eternity by the hazel wand placed carefully in his tomb. The subject of this podcast, like most of this second season, is based on material you can find in my new book, Acestrian Song, which is available on my website, thelocalmythstorian.com, and directly from Amazon in both the UK and the US. You can find me on Twitter too, at TLMythstorian. Until next time. <laughs>